Welcome to the Just for the Health of It podcast. I'm Ann West, Executive Director of the Island Health and Wellness Foundation. And today I'm talking with Ashley Pesek, Program Director for Opiate Free Island Partnership. As usual, this is not intended to serve as any type of medical or healthcare advice. It's just for educational purposes. And we usually have some fun along the way. So with that, let's get into our conversation. We'll start with our typical questions. Ashley, tell me who you are, where you work, and what you do. Uh, my name is Ashley Pesek. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I am the program director for the Opiate Free Island Partnership, and I am also the clinical supervisor for AMA Emergency Services. Nice. Well, okay, thinking back to 10-year-old Ashley, did she want to grow up to work in the mental health and substance use field, or is this something that you came to when you were older? Oh, that's a really good question, and uh, no, 10-year-old Ashley actually wanted to deliver babies. She thought that was that. a spectacular plan, um, but then my very first a assignment when I went to the main school of science and mathematics for high school because I was preparing to be a doctor, but uh, my very first English assignment was to write a paper about all of the possibly negative things about your uh, chosen career path. And then, uh, so I wrote this paper and I was like, you know, all of 15 years old. And I realized that um, there's a lot of tragedy involved in being an OBGYN. And so immediately uh, that was not gonna be a career path for me. And then I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Uh, but I had a particularly spectacular uh, psychology and sociology teacher, and I was fascinated um, with specifically the mental health of criminals. And so I thought, okay, I think I'm going to go down this career path. Um, and my intention was um, I wanted to be a behavioral analyst. Um, uh, and analyze, be, you know, do psychological evaluations on people who had committed crimes. And then uh, I went to college to do just that. And when I got to college, I tried to get an internship at uh, Bobby Benson Center in Hawaii. Um, it's a residential uh, treatment facility for adolescent substance abusers. Uh, and they didn't give me an internship, they gave me a job. And I fell in love with it. And um, somewhere around like the last semester of my bachelor's degree in psychology, I realized that social work was probably the thing I was always designed to do. And, um, you know, I, I was working with 12 year olds to 19 year olds who were in residential treatment uh, for various forms of addiction. Um, and, and think about that, a 12 year old. Um, and so um, I, was, I, I was hooked and um, you know, felt like this was the thing that I was really always intended to do. I love that. So as you were growing up on the islands, I was growing up in Searsport, also wanting to become a doctor until I found out um, that I pass out at the sight of blood and most <laughs> stitches. Um, so I totally feel you. Uh, the 10 year old me also had plans that way. So I love it, though, that you still went into a helping field, um, because I feel like just knowing you, you exude helpful, you exude that 
helping attitude and it benefits so many people. So let's focus a little bit on your work that you do for Opiate Free Island Partnership. One of the things that I keep seeing is that people should call you and they should reach out if they want recovery resources. And I'll put it in the show notes, but your direct number at OFIP, which is the acronym for Opiate Free Island Partnership, is 367-5850. I know that because it's one digit off from my office number. Um, if people reach out and they call you, what can they expect? That is a great question. So at this point, we actually have that phone line forwarded to me. So they should get me almost all of the time. I'm service in rural Maine is not great, but most of the time they should actually get me, not an answer. Agreed. Um, and so my goal with that, and the reason why we're telling the community to call me and, and I post it all the time is um, each journey to recovery is going to be different. Like there's no one size fits all. You have to figure out what fits for you. And um, so, you know, our goal is to have that start with a discussion. Um, you know, if somebody calls me and what they're ready for is um, I might be willing to talk to somebody further and get an assessment. We can link them up to an assessment for free. If they call me and they say, I'm actually just not ready to stop, but I need, I need to know what I can do to keep myself safe. We're going to get them Narcan and fentanyl test strips um, and, and probably talk to them about a syringe service program. Um, and so it really, you know, the goal of that initial call is what are you looking for and how can I help? And then to talk about what services we have available locally and maybe help people to break down barriers. Um, you know, an appropriate call to make to me is I'm in withdrawal. I thought I could do this. I quit cold turkey. I didn't want any help. And now I'm in withdrawal and I don't know what to do because I'm miserable. Fantastic. I can help you. Um, and, you know, an, an appropriate call to me is my mom needs some Narcan because I'm using and that's that's okay too. Um, and so, you know, we really want to start with that phone call so that we can help people to personalize what connection to what service is going to meet them where they're at. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And I have to say, I, I can't think of a better person for this job than you to be on the other end of that phone when that call comes in. Um, I think your, your ties to the island, the fact that you grew up here, the fact that you have the professional experience that you have, um, it all just comes together. And I, I think it's just, it's perfect that you're the one picking up that phone and it's obvious from the way that you're talking um, and everything I've ever heard you say, how non-judgmental you are and that you're really just there to support the journey and to make sure that whoever calls knows um, that you care and that you're, you're invested and that the community has resources available no matter what their situation is. Now, one thing that you referenced in talking um, were things like uh, fentanyl strips, Narcan, and then um, you also mentioned the syringe exchange. I know that those are all part of what's called harm reduction. So can you speak to what harm reduction is and why it's important to recovery? Yes. So the bottom line is nobody can be in recovery if they die. 
it's it's really just that simple. Um, one of the things that I often say when I speak publicly is, are we all invested in our community members living? And you know, like the logical answer to that is yes, nobody ever says no. Um, and so then if we start from there, we're all invested in our community members living, then, then that, that helps me to wrap my head around what happens when we're offering harm reduction. Sort of the old school thought of substance use recovery was abstinence only. And what we've learned over time is that actually doesn't work because that's a one size fits all approach and, and it was killing people. And so when we talk about harm reduction services, we're talking about the fact that there has to be a continuum of care available for people who are seeking recovery because not everybody is ready for the same thing. And so harm reduction services are designed to literally do just that. If we can't have what would be best case scenario, right? If you can't help, I mean, it would be lovely if we could help everybody with an addiction of any kind be able to free themselves of that and live the life they want to live tomorrow. If that's not, you know, I don't have a magic wand. And so if that's not an option, then what is the next best thing? Can we do things to help them live, help them live long enough that they could get into sustained recovery where they could have the life that they choose? Um, people who are in the hardest parts of active use are, they're aware that they're uncomfortable. They're aware that this is having a detriment on things in their life that matter, like their family or their jobs or their ability to maintain housing even and their health. They know all of that. And so harm reduction is um, evidence-based practices that are designed to help people to stay alive. Um, and so when we talk about Narcan, we're talking about um, it's, it helps to reverse an overdose because again, if you die from an overdose, you cannot get into sustained recovery. Fentanyl test strips are, are designed to help people to know if they're about to ingest something that could be a, a fatal substance. Um, definitely fentanyl is found in opiates, but we also know it's being found in cocaine. Cocaine is a rather low overdose drug. And so if somebody believes that they're using a substance that has a, a, a not a typically fatal outcome, and then they accidentally ingest fentanyl, they could overdose and die. And so fentanyl test strips are designed to uh, determine what's in the substance before you use it so that you can live, right? Again, the goal being let's live. And when we talk about um, syringe service programs, we're really talking about, um, or what we used to call a needle exchange, we're talking about how do you reduce the, the um, likelihood of diseases like HIV and hepatitis C. Um, and then, and that means how do you improve the quality of life, right? How do you keep them alive, reduce the risk that they might get a disease that could then be transmitted to somebody else uh, who isn't using? Um, and then finally, we also are talking about uh, programs like medication-assisted treatment, which really falls under that harm reduction umbrella. Lots of times I'll talk to people who are looking to get into recovery and they'll say, but I don't want to exchange one drug for another. And so we'll talk about, I hear you, because like that makes sense to me. 
Um, I even hear people say that with regards to um, AA meetings, like it's, it's a crutch. I don't want to move from one crutch to another. The reason I want to be in recovery is I want to free myself from those things. And that makes such good sense. But I talk to people about this being a stepping stone, right? It's um, opiate withdrawal is uncomfortable. I once had somebody describe it to me and she said that she felt like she was being electrocuted because there's so much just pain as she was going through the withdrawal. Um, and so imagine if you trying to, to quit cold turkey and you have that feeling and you're clearly aware that if you just go get a little, you might feel better, right? But then you, you that ultimately usually doesn't end up helping people they're using to sustain, but they're not able to get the parts of their life back that they want because they're still dependent on something. Um, but if you are going to a program where you are getting um, a medication that's that kind of like blocks this part of your brain so that you're not getting high, you're just not getting sick. Those, those are two really different things. Then you can still go to work and you can still be um, a parent and a son and you could still enjoy the football game because you didn't pass out because there was too much in your system and so people can start to get their lives back and so when I think about harm reduction I really think of it right it's a continuum of care it's on the spectrum of services and for some people they might need to stay in MAT or medication assisted treatment for a lengthy period of time and for some people, it might be a step along the way to abstinence, but it's a step that allows them to get part of their life back. It allows them to enjoy the things that make life meaningful, which we know having that rich life and having those social supports and those connections increases your chances of having sustained recovery. And so, you know, I really, I hear people when they say, but I don't want this. I want to be, I want to be abstinent. And, and I also um, help them to try to think about it in a different way. Um, certainly if somebody wants to do abstinence only, there are rehab programs, there's detox programs, and there's things that we're going to help them get connected to. And I would also encourage everybody, um, regardless of whether they're using, to look at the benefits of harm reduction and again, when we go back to that basic premise of do, are we invested in our people living? If the answer to that is yes, harm reduction has to be one of the options on the table for treatment. I love that so much. And I, I said it before and I will say it again, you are the perfect person um, because I, I think the way that you explained it, it not only makes sense, um, but it's just so logical and it's so encompassing of all paths to recovery. And I, I think that idea that one size doesn't fit all in this case is something important that we as a community need to keep revisiting, that there isn't just one way to recovery. So what do you wish though that more people knew about substance use and recovery? Oh, <laughs> um... <laughs> You can make a list. It's okay. Yeah, I might, but I think for starters, like the, the, like if I can't, if I do one thing here only, if I accomplish one thing at the opiate free Island partnership, it is to make sure that this community, um, gets as much information as possible about, um, 
having an addiction or opiate use disorder. It is not a moral failing. Uh, it is not weakness. It is a brain disease that people do not choose. It is a genetic disease that you are born with the possibility of occurring. Um, and I want us to talk about it. I want to make um, addiction talkable in this community. Um, if we could talk about it, like we can talk about diabetes and cancer, then what happens? We tell our, our friends, our family members, people who are suffering in silence, it's actually safe to come and get help here because we're not gonna judge you. Um, and I think that like having a community where we believe that about substance use disorder is um, that like education is key, understanding that this isn't a choice. It's hard, it's hard to wrap your head around that because um, substance use disorder is, is a brain disease from a genetic condition that has associated behaviors that impact other people's lives. And so it's so easy to get fixated on those behaviors and think, why can't you just stop, right? But that's like, that's those behaviors happen because of something that they didn't choose. Yes, it may be a choice um, to, um, to steal or it may be a choice to, to continue to use, but it comes from a compulsion that you didn't choose. Um, one of the things that I used to say to the teenagers I worked at, and it's a little crass, but I say it this way Bring because it. they're teenagers and that's the way you need to get their attention. Nobody starts out the first time that they use a substance thinking, I want to be um, an, an old man with man boobs sleeping on a park bench. I love that's that. Not a thing that they think the first time they use. What they think is, yeah, but that's not going to happen to me because the average age of introduction to substances is somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. And they're not thinking when they use for the first time, I might not be able to stop. This could become the thing that my whole life is based around. They're thinking I'm gonna have fun with my friends because they're all using it. And they're not aware that they're the one in the room with a genetic predisposition that they didn't choose. And so I think it becomes what happens with substance use disorder is that over time, those behaviors, people that are, that impact your family, they do, they impact your family, they impact your friends. It starts to become um, easy to just focus on that part of it. You could choose something different. And, and the thing is, if it's impacting their life in such a way that they're losing everything that matters to them, right? That's the answer. If you could choose something different, you already would have. So it's not a choice, it's a compulsion. And it has to do with the changes that are made in their brain once that genetic disorder is tipped off. And so, you know, my, my whole, if I'm speaking to the community and trying to help them to understand what's happening with substance use disorder, that is the thing I would want them to know. I would want them to know people are not choosing this. And, it, yes, it hurts. And yes, it's hard and it hurts them too. And it's hard for them too. And um, nobody, nobody is intentionally saying, I would like to get addicted to the substance that I'm ingesting at the age of 14. That's just not a thing. I really appreciate all of that. Um, I think what I go back to is um, something that you said at one point, and I can't remember if you said it or if I read um, a quote from you, uh, but it was along the lines of 
I would like to see a community like ours um, respond to someone with a family member who has addiction the way they respond when a family member has cancer with crock pots of food and lines at the door for support um, and, and just getting rid of that stigma. And I thought that was a beautiful picture because I don't think I have ever been or experienced a community like Dear Al Stonington that rallies so much um, when something bad happens or something challenging happens and how that really is our goal is to get to a point with substance use where there is no stigma. It's the same response if you find out that somebody's son is struggling with substances as it is if you found out that somebody's son had cancer. So that, that when you said that, um, it just really made me think and it, it became kind of goals um, for me as a recovery coach. So thank you so much. Now, what if I'm listening to this I'm not personally struggling with substance use, but I have a family member who is. Are there community resources for me in that situation? Absolutely. So first of all, call me. Um, and second of all, um, so we have a group called um, uh, Friends and Family and it's run by Marianne Oganowski, who's a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. Um, it's happening over Zoom. They've been able to keep it in a contactless way. Um, and the, the beauty of it happening over Zoom is if you're not ready to out yourself or your loved one, you can change your name on Zoom and turn your camera off and you can still attend this meeting and get support because this isn't a thing that we should do alone. It's incredibly hard, right? Because those behaviors that I just talked about, it's so it's hard when your family member has cancer. It's hard when your family member has a chronic illness. This is a chronic brain disease and it's hard to watch. It's hard to be afraid that somebody you love is going to die all of the time. And so um, I would urge people not to do that alone, um, not to, um, you know, experience the highs and lows of that without a group to help them process it. Um, and so, you know, I am an affected other. Um, and so I'm the child of an alcoholic and I'm the mother of somebody who's in active addiction. And um, I know how hard this is. So I would encourage people to call me um, for, for a lot of reasons. One of which is I'm just gonna be a good shoulder. Like this is, I get this. Um, but the other is there's resources. And this is, um, you know, when, when I think about what happens in a family where there's addiction, it's not just the person who's using who's sick, everybody is, we all are. And so um, allow yourself to get treatment and support as well so that you can process what's happening to somebody that you really love. Um, and we do have the locally available supports. Um, Marianne's been, when, prior to COVID, she was coming in person um, every week religiously. Um, but I think what, what we would find if more people would utilize that group is it's also validating to know you're not the only one who feels this way. You're not alone in this boat um, because of the nature of stigma around substance use disorder. People do feel alone um, and not just the person who's using, but the family member, right? Like it's, it's not, it's not mine to share, but it's impacting my life every single minute of every day. 
And so the, this group is a place where you can find um, other people who understand that. Um, if they're experiencing it themselves, you are likely not gonna have any judgment when you walk into that group. Um, and you can really talk freely about that and without, without outing the person you love because like that's the hard balance, right? Is if they're not ready to come forward with this, then you don't have a you don't have a way to say hey we need some casseroles because we have been you know we're we're really struggling you just have to keep that quiet um and or you feel that you have to keep that quiet and this is a place where it's okay it's okay to share confidentiality is protected everybody there understands what you're going through and and you can share openly um without the worry of how stigma is gonna impact that conversation. Um, so I would encourage anybody who's, the term we use is an affected other. Um, and so for me, what that means is, it doesn't just have to be your family member. I mean, this could be your best friend. This could be just somebody you really love and you're afraid. That is an affected other. Um, and so please give me a call and I'll help get you the connections for the Zoom link. And it's free um, and it's a, it's a really good place with your community, right? You're not talking about going somewhere away from here to talk to people who maybe don't get how ingrained island life is and we all know everybody's business. Um, but if you want that level of anonymity, I can help you make those connections as well. That's wonderful. And speaking from personal experience, um, Ashley is there when stuff happens. Um, I actually had a family member that we found out was in active use. And within that same day, um, she was able to meet with me. She was able to give me resources that I could share. Um, she was able to send me with doses of Narcan as well as fentanyl testing strips. Um, it really changed the conversation from one of devastation, obviously, and, and surprise, to really one of hope and just feeling like, okay, there's plenty of resources out there for all of us involved in the situation, but especially the message that my family member was valued, um, that this wasn't just another person using, um, that he was a person, his life mattered, and let's do what we can to keep him safe. And then he'll be alive if and when he makes the decision um, that he wants recovery. And so I, speaking from personal experience, this is such a blessing to our community. I would keep Ashley's number close by. Um, I can tell you that one minute I did not know there was an issue and the next minute I was on the phone with her. So um, don't, don't lose her number because you never know when this issue is going to directly affect your life. Um, Ashley, how has the pandemic affected the work that you do here on the island and substance use in general? Uh, substance use in general, the numbers are up across the country. Maine is um, up, I think they said yesterday on the news, 27% in the first six months of the year in overdose deaths as compared wow. to last year. Um, it's, I mean, when you think about all of the things that are risky for a person in early recovery, it's isolation, anxiety. We talk about things, um, there's this acronym called HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Well, how many of us have felt hungry, angry, lonely, tired during this pandemic? 
I have um, my hand up twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the reality is um, it's causing a, a baseline level of stress for everybody that somebody with, um, you know, new coping skills for how to manage what they have going on in their life um, is it, it's taxing all of that. And so we've seen an increase in overdose deaths. We've seen um, an increase in overdoses that don't result in death. We've, um, you know, ev the worst pos possible outcomes, right? We've heard Dr. Shaw use the terminology an epidemic inside of a pandemic. Um, and, and so um, that has become uh, quite apparent that that the emotional impact and the social impact of the pandemic is impacting um, rates of use, uh, relapse, and recovery. And um, but the silver lining is due to the pandemic. There's all of these emergency rules available within things like main care law and insurance laws to allow for the use of something like televideo for telehealth services things that you used to not be able to get through telehealth, you can now. And so one of the barriers that's always existed for Islanders who are seeking treatment is, particularly if you need anything outside of one hour a week therapy, you're gonna be headed off island. And bottom line is that's a day long trip for anybody here. Um, you know, they're gonna leave, they gotta have their appointment, they've gotta drive there, drive back. And most of us, if we're leaving the island, make sure that we plan all of our errands at the same time, right? And so go to Walmart. That's Walmart. right. You do it all while you're there so you don't have to go again. So by the time you get home, most people have used up a good solid four to six hours of their day and their day's done. Which means if I'm working, treatment becomes super hard. But due to the pandemic, with all of the um, emergency rule changes to insurance, people can get treatment from their living room now, which I think is like a silver lining to all of this. We actually saw in the first month of the pandemic, um, so April would have been the first like full month. Um, I think the statistic was something like over 300% increase in telehealth services for opiate use disorder. So um, treatment is more accessible. Uh, you can get it in a way that's more anonymous if you're somebody who is concerned about accessing care because people might see my car and I don't want them to know. Um, or I might go there and there might be somebody in the room I know and that's too scary. Um, that doesn't happen anymore because you can get treatment from your home. Um, so, and that also means that if, um, you know, the other, granted Ellsworth is a long track for us, but let's say that for whatever reason, providers there were completely packed, you could get treatment from somebody in Bangor or Augusta or Portland um, because you can zoom in to get that treatment. So, I, I, you know, there are some things about the pandemic that has made it very challenging, but there are also some things about the pandemic that have improved it. From the Opiate Free Island Partnership perspective, I kind of had to stop everything. Um, I have a lot of kids, and so I had to make sure I had my people situated. But then um, it was, how do we reimagine what we're doing? Because one of the things that was, th the reason I was hired was the intention was to build relationship with the community, with people who are in active use, with people who are in recovery, family members. How do you do that over a screen? Um, and uh, I, I like really dislike 
video cameras. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we've had to do some work for, on our end to help me figure out how to reimagine the services that I want to be able to offer to the community in a fashion that's accessible, even during a pandemic. And the first thing we were able to do successfully was Narcan. It's super easy to do a Narcan training over Zoom. Um, and then I just deliver the bag to people on their porch and it's contactless and they don't have to, they don't have to touch me or see me. Um, and so we can, you know, that was an easy way to um, reimagine our services. Some of the harder ones is we had been doing things like potlucks. That's obviously not going to happen anytime, probably in the next few years. So we're in the process of trying to figure out how do we um, accomplish getting that message out to the community um, in a relatable way um, and using technology tools. Um, and so we've got some good ideas with videos. We've done a couple. They weren't spectacular because that's just not something I'm good at. Um, but I, you know, I think our, we'd like to see us grow to a place where we could do something like, um, like a live and people could ask questions, um, which is something people had the opportunity to do at a potluck. Um, where we would have a topic and a presenter. And so we'd really love to be able to do that um, in, in, and kind of grow to that. So that's, that's where we're headed. Um, and um, certainly in terms of like helping people to access care, um, that is something that I could have done over the phone anyway all along. And so that's a thing that has still been able to happen. Um, it's, we might have to be more creative about how we meet, um, but it, all of those services are still available. That's great. And the more that I talk to people in these conversations who are working in various areas, it seems that the pandemic has brought challenges, but there's also these silver linings that we really need to focus on. Like you had mentioned, all of the services that require travel that now are, are being done by um, telemedicine those kind of things are huge wins. And I think it's important when things do get challenging um, to really focus on what we're grateful for. And that change in the availability of service is, is definitely a huge win. Now, you kind of alluded to this in your last comments. You are actually a mom of nine children. So I'm, I'm gonna stop and say that again um, for everyone. You are a mom of nine children. What recommendation would you give to parents who are trying to make sure that their children don't turn to substance use as a way to cope? Oh, well, let me start with it's a genetic condition. And so first of all, you might do absolutely everything right and you might still have a kiddo who struggles and that's okay. Um, but be vigilant. Um, and if you know you have a family history of addiction, be that mom who's like talking to your kid in the high chair and <laughs> explain this to them over and over again. Just like we tell them, hey, if, you know, if you've got a family history of diabetes, probably most of us are saying it's, it's not a great idea for you to sugar up. It's really unhealthy. And we, we probably start that when they're three or two, <laughs> when they start getting introduced to sugar. Same exact thing help them to understand this is a thing that's within your genes that you don't control as early and as often as possible. Um, and, and be vigilant. 
Um, let's just be real. Teenagers are smarter than us. They just yeah. are. And, um, you know, there's all of the typical things that people are going to tell you to look for, right? Behavior changes, grades dropping, um, all of that's true. But if you get to the point where somebody's behavior is changing and their grades are dropping, it, they're already using in a way that's hurting their life. And so back it all the way up before they use, have a good relationship with your kids, be involved, show up, be present, know their friends, hang out with them and their friends once in a while um, and, and make the tough decisions to set boundaries when, when you have to. Um, helping your kids to be accustomed to limits is gonna be something that really benefits them for their whole life in general. But particularly as we talk about um, what is common experimenting of substances during adolescence, um, having a relationship that you established with your kid early on that says, hey, there's limits in life. And when we set limits as your parents, it's out of love, helps them to, to manage those murky waters of adolescence that can get really hard. Um, and, and again, just paying attention. There's a lot out there. Do your research. Um, you know, uh, Juul as a company um, has taken a lot of public criticism because it, it's introduced a lot of adolescents to addiction. I, I can't even say to substances, the numbers are staggering of kids who have gone from using that to other substances. Um, and so don't minimize something like that um, and try to to make sure you're being clear about what the risks are associated with it. Um, and I, you've probably heard me say this before, but the people who are marketing substances are really smart and they have an awful lot of money. And they're, our kids are getting, watching ads, um, you know, as soon as they can watch television that over and over and over again are sending messages that it's socially acceptable. Um, and, but there's nothing that's educating them that while it is socially acceptable to use alcohol or um, legal to smoke marijuana in the state, it, that's not the same as it's safe for everybody. For some people, it is gonna end up not being safe. And so it's our job, we have to be louder. We have to be louder than those messages and we have to say them more often because they're going to hear it over and over and over again from their friends, from television, from music, from the things that they see on social media. And if we're going to help them to understand that there's risk involved, we have got to be louder and more frequent in our communication about the risks as well to help them to understand that. And it needs to start really young. That is such valuable information. As a mom of a newly minted teenager, I feel like I should have taken notes as you were talking. Um, that's powerful and it certainly is a call to action for all of us who are parenting children um, right now in this world that probably looks a lot different from the world even that we all grew up in, um, that we need to do our due diligence and um, we need to be aware and we need to get loud. Um, my daughter would certainly say I had no problem getting loud. So <laughs> I think that comes naturally, but <laughs> I appreciate that. Now, um, what we usually do to kind of wrap up the podcast is I ask every, um, whoever I'm talking to, 
to recommend a book, um, a, and in your case, a book about substance use, recovery, prevention, somewhere around that topic that everyone listening should read. And then talk a little bit about why you would recommend that book. Oh, such a good question. So um, there's a book that they use in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's called The Big Book. Um, and it's, it's like the Bible. Um, and it, it's, um, there's stories, um, but it also talks about the steps involved in recovery. And um, I read that book when I was 18, because I was working at a, a adolescent alcohol and drug recovery facility, and I was not an addict myself. So I wanted to understand. Um, and it's, you know, been published over and over again with new updates. And um, the reason I would recommend that book, regardless of, you know, what kind of recovery people are seeking, they're still going to go through some version of those steps, right? You, you know, the fourth step is making amends. And so what that means is, you know, those behaviors that are associated with substance use disorder cause an impact on other people's lives and helping somebody to take accountability for and um, make amends for those behaviors and repair those relationships is kind of how I think about it. That's going to happen whether your path to recovery is MAT or full abstinence. And so, um, you know, I, I think that that book is beneficial because it, sh it shares stories, but it also shares like it's hard work to get into recovery. And these are the, the things that people are having to do, whether they do them with a, a sponsor or they do it in their own head or their own heart. Um, it's a lot. And so I think it just gives a, a really um, first person perspective on, um, and in a really meaningful way on what recovery is. Um, and so I, I think if I were going to recommend a book to help people to understand, um, particularly to understand what we talked about at the beginning, addiction is not a choice. Um, I, I think it would be that book. Okay. That was a complete surprise to me. I did not expect you to recommend that book. Um, but now I'm intrigued and I want to read it. I will put a link to that book in the show notes. Um, so again, it's the big book. Um, yeah. And it's part of the AA um, program. So that was a surprise, but now I'm excited. So thank you. Um, Ashley, it has been a pleasure to talk with you. I want to say um, the work that you're doing, a lot of it sounds like it's, it's behind the scenes, um, but I just want you to be assured that the community and all of us um, really appreciate what you're doing. You're saving lives and um, even though it's been a challenge, I'm sure, um, to do this work through the pandemic, it sounds like the work that you're doing hasn't missed a beat, that you're continuing to challenge yourself. Um, even though you may not be comfortable uh, behind the video, I think you do an amazing job. And I can't wait to see what's in store for the future for you and for Opiate Free Island Partnership. So thanks so much for taking this time today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Uh -huh.